Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you want to help someone who's struggling and have absolutely no idea what to say or do? We've all been there. Welcome to Profiles in Comfort, where incredible everyday people who are living through really difficult times share their stories of how those around them use the skill of comfort to help them through the valley, showing us the way to break through our own awkward zone to help those who desperately need to know we care. I'm Jen Marr, and today we're talking to Alex Harrington. In November of 2013, Alex received a phone call from his doctor that the fist-sized lump removed from the back of his arm was stage three cancer. After successfully battling that, in 2016, the cancer came back. You might think that living with stage four cancer for over six years would wear one down, but not Alex. His attitude is summed up in a quote he shared with me from The Road Less Traveled. Life is difficult, once we truly know that life is difficult, once we truly understand and accept it, then life is no longer difficult. Because once it is accepted, the fact that life is difficult no longer matters. Alex is currently a Senior Special Assistant and Advisor for U.S. Customs and Border Protection and the Department of Homeland Security. His remarkable career has included time as a Marine, a Branch Chief for the GSA, and a Public Affairs Officer in the Army and Navy. He is also the founder of the Federal Career Connections. I know Alex's wisdom and words will inspire you as they have me. Welcome, Alex. Good morning, Jen. Good morning. So good to have you here. Alex, tell us, what was it like that first day that you found out you had cancer? I know for me, uh, as I'm looking back to 2013, I remember I was I was at work. I was working in Washington D.C. My wife was working in Fairfax, and we both uh, we both uh, the day prior went to the primary care doctor because I felt a a significant uh, a, a large lump uh, on my left side uh, under my armpit. So they did a biopsy. So uh, the next day, as I'm at work, and my and my wife Teresa is at her in her office, we're just, we're just kind of um, trying to do our job, but obviously I, my thoughts was on the, you know, what was going on with me. Um, the primary care doctor actually contacted uh, Teresa first and gave her the news that it was indeed cancer. And uh, she then transferred him to my phone uh, at my office in, in, uh, in Washington, DC. So when I picked up the phone, it was, uh, you know, uh, my primary care doctor uh, said, hey, Alex, and I said, hey, doctor, what's up? And uh, he says, I have bad news. Um, you do have cancer. And from that point, when you mentioned that C word, it, my mind almost went into a dream state because he, he, he started talking about uh, next steps and, you know, what to do next and, and, and recommending uh, uh, oncologist. And I, I, at one point I just said to him, I said, Hey, let me, let's talk about this later. I just, I just need to kind of take this. And so I, I hung up the phone and I, I sat at my desk and I was looking at the, just looking at the computer, but not seeing anything. And I just got up and I walked into my boss's office, a great guy. Uh, uh, he was a border patrol agent. And I walked into his office and he looked at me and he's like, what's going on, Alex? And I just broke down. I fell to my knees. He rushed over. He knelt down beside me. And I was so, 
uh, sh shaken up and also so angry. I, at one point, I ripped part of his uniform. I was grabbing his top collar and I literally uh, ripped because I was just angry and, and shaken and, and just, uh, just shocked that I had cancer. And from that whole day, uh, it's, just a, it's just a blur. It's eight years later, Alex. What has been going on since that initial day that you found out? Oh, my goodness. Well, after that, from that first day, I was officially diagnosed with stage three melanoma cancer, which means it was they found a, a, a fist-sized tumor uh, uh, in the lymph node uh, under my uh, left armpit. It was, it was centralized. It was not in any other parts of my body, so it was considered stage three. Uh, and after that first bout, uh, unfortunately, I had about a, a year remission, and but unfortunately, they detected another tumor in my left leg, and that actually took it to stage four because they realized that the the cancer cells were traveling uh, in, the lymph, uh, in the lymphatic system and also in the blood cells through just uh, systemic treatment and various type of uh, regimens. We've 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 gotten rid of one tumor. And we have two left. They haven't metastasized because they're both in the lymphatic system. They're both in lymph nodes. So for me, I'm very fortunate because as a stage four melanoma cancer patient, uh, you know, 10 years prior, I wouldn't be talking to you right now based off the statistics. Alex, that's amazing. You told me earlier about getting through this and how it takes a village. Tell us about your village. Well, I definitely will say I'm very blessed to have such an amazing support group. My, uh, Teresa and I, both my wife and I, we're very blessed and we're loved uh, because I don't think we could have done, we couldn't have fought this cancer as well as we did without that village. It may go back to my Marine days as a Marine. You, you, you learn teamwork. It also could be the fact that every place I go to, I've always jumped into community. I've always built relationships. The first team was my our family. Teresa's sister flew, uh, flew in from Canada. My family from Ohio came in during the initial, uh, the first resection of the tumor. For us to be able to, uh, you know, not be burnt out by fighting cancer, because uh, during that first month after the resection, it was one month daily going into the effusion center and receiving. Uh, the infusion. And then after that first month, the rest of the year, doing chemo shots twice a week. So for that first month, uh, we, we recruited this village, our, our community members and our friends and our, and our church friends. And we had two basic needs. Number one, transportation to the infusion center and sitting with me. So having somebody with me as I'm undergoing uh, the infusion. The second is actually a meal program. I uh, built this online sign up to have people actually bring us meals because I didn't want Teresa to be cooking. I wanted to be spending time with her because we just didn't know the outcome. So this village was made up of our, our community members, our friends, our, 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 our church family. They all just came in and just we we just we felt so much love, and then there are other village uh, these other village members that I didn't even know that they learned about my situation. Where this uh, this uh, this group in Michigan uh, knits 
both Teresa and I, had these prayer shouts, and we received them in the mail. And then another uh, work friend, uh, actually not really a friend, just a work colleague who I didn't know well, um, you know, I received this beautiful knitted blanket from, from her to so for me to take to the to the cancer center. So even even though we had uh, we had uh, recruited uh, people that we knew, we also had individuals around outside that circle that we didn't know. We were getting gifts or cards from. And that was yeah. the benefit of having that village. Oh my goodness. The village is beautiful, Alex. And, and you just said so many beautiful things in there. And I give you so much credit for actually organizing it because there is that awkward zone where people really do want to help, but sometimes they just don't know what it is. And you gave them that vehicle, you know, bringing you to the infusion center, being there for you with that. And it's something sometimes we don't think about that could be so helpful to someone going through cancer. And you shared with me when we talked earlier, Alex, that when you went to the infusion center, the nurses loved the fact that you would show up with someone different each time. But tell us about how many were there with nobody with them. For me, I would always have, you know, either when I arrived, someone would either be there waiting for me or the person who picked me up and took me there, they would be stay with me. But I always had somebody with me. There were a few who were just by themselves. And this is something where a lot of cancer patients will experience. They, they experience cancer guilt where you're, you're beating this cancer or you're, you're doing fairly well with the treatment. And then you're looking at somebody next to you who's not doing well and who's suffering from the treatment. And more so, they don't have anybody with them. And one of the nurses, and I can't remember uh, who, uh, her name, and she told me, and one day we're just t- well talking, and she said to me, yeah, there are some folks that are in here that don't have anyone who, are, who, have, uh, who has somebody to sit with them. And I, and I, and I of course, I, you know, I expressed how, you know, how, you know, I felt bad for them. And then she looked at me and she said, well, when you beat this, you're obligated. And this was actually kind of, this really kind of stuck with me. And it really is really coming up now that, I'm, that I remember what she said. She uh, said, when you beat this, you're obligated to actually then give back. You're obligated to do something after this. This is something that you just don't take for granted. You have to actually, you have to act on it and do something. And I've always actually, that's always stayed in my heart. That's beautiful. And what a great public service announcement to for anybody out there that knows someone that's going through cancer, ask to sit with them during the infusion, right? Maybe during COVID, it's a little more complicated, but once we're past that, what a, what a great thought. Alex, you shared when you went back to work that everything felt a little different. You were straddling the fence and people around you didn't quite know how to treat you. And this is very typical. We call the workplace the awkward zone. Share some learning moments in the workplace coming to work all these days uh, over these last eight years and share some things that people can learn. I think the most common mistake that we all make as human beings, we want to say the right thing uh, to anyone who's going through a difficult time, a hardship in life. We want to say something that we hope that will bring them up. Uh, It's one of those things that I think it's just we all uh, want to do, we all try to do, uh, but 
sometimes I would say, I would say most of us, including me, even mostly, but definitely before cancer, that sometimes we just, we try to say the, uh, the right thing, but um, it, it, but it fell in a different way on the recipient. The one thing that always kind of like, you know, kind of got me is when somebody would say, well, you're going to be fine. You're going to beat cancer. You're going to, you're going to be healed. Well, you don't do that. Some of us have good stories, have good, there are good endings. Those who go into remission, someone like me who is stage four, and I'm still able to live and work to the, to the max. Uh, but there are others who don't make it through. And so when you say things such as you're going to beat cancer or God's going to heal you, in my opinion, you're taking the position of God and you're not God. Now, what you could say is this, and, I've, and I say it myself, is uh, when I find, find out when someone has a, a life-threatening uh, situation such as cancer, my first, uh, my first words to them is, are, number one, what can I do for you? Is there anything that I can do for you right now? And also you can say, I know you're going to fight hard. What can I do to help you fight this cancer to the max? Is there anything I can do to give you that extra fighting spirit? Alex, you know, that that's so good. And and everybody is really well-intentioned. That's That's why we're landing on these segments, right? Because you know that anybody that came to you to say something was awkward and was trying to find the right thing just didn't come out right. So helpful to know these things and how they land on people. And I know that you also talked about people would give advice, right? And talk about advice and how you feel when you get that. Well, I know this. I know when it comes to fighting cancer, we we put our... I put my life into the doctor's hands. I put my life in the experts' hands. Uh, they're the ones who, who trained all those years. They, they're the ones who know the science. They're the ones who know the, how to use the, the drugs and the, and the treatments. But there are those around us, and, I, and even inside the village, that we would, we would get certain recommendations that are really were not science-based or were not evidence-based, things such as you need to eat a lot of yogurt or you need to drink a lot of orange juice. All good, uh, good-hearted uh, recommendations. I, I totally get it, and I, I understand it. Uh, but none of these recommendations that I received from people who are not doctors didn't have any sound evidence that would cure cancer. I guess it's just when people think what helped them might help you, right? And and again, it's a well-intentioned thing, and it's just something that we can all know that it's okay. Don't give advice. Just be there. Right. And so talk about that, like on the flip side, when people just sat and asked you how you were doing or came to you and said, what, what can I do? How that fell on you in the workplace and how those relationships grew because they said it the right way. When people would come to me and say, they would ask, Hey, and they would, they would basically say to me, uh, let me know how I can help you out. Can I take you to the infusion center? Can I prepare you a meal? But the best thing that I think I've always, uh, from, that I got from individuals who I really, I just, I cherished. And I even have uh, 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 kind of shoe boxes where I have them in is cards. Uh, all throughout each of the three bouts, I, I received all these beautiful cards 
of inspirational quotes and just uh, just uh, loving notes and Alex, you can do it. Those actually really resonated the most with me when I would receive a card in the mail or a letter, and basically to that gives me the, a just a, a inspirational quote to buoy my spirits. Sometimes in the workplace, I would find a note on my desk uh, written by a senior official and basically say, Alex, I'm rooting for you. One day when I get time, I will love to take all those notes, all those cards and put them in like a scrapbook. That's beautiful. It is sometimes it's just the simple things, doing it over and over, letting you know that you're not forgotten and that you matter and you're cared for. Wow, Alex, you're just teaching us so much today. And I know that you want to do a shout out to someone who's just been there for you all the time. Who's your comfort shout out, Alex? Of course, is my beautiful wife, Teresa, Teresa Harrington. We actually met overseas. She was a Canadian. I was an American. We met in South Korea, married under uh, Korean government. And she's always just been uh, my, 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 my helpmate. What really impressed me about her is that that day when we both got kicked with the news of my cancer and the rest of the day was just a blur. That morning when I woke up at 3 a.m. and I just, I struggled with God. And then I went into the bedroom, turned on the light, and I just started bawling. And she got out of bed and we both hugged each other. We just, we welled, we cried. Because we just, we thought our life together, it, it's, it's going to be cut short. It was like 4 a.m. Uh, Teresa gets up, I make coffee, and she, come, she goes into my home office. And I said, what are you doing? Well, she said, we have these meetings that are set the, you know, this week and next week. And she says, I am not going to wait next week to find out how bad this cancer is. I'm going to move meetings around. And that's what she did. She literally contacted different hospitals and had all the tests moved earlier so that we can find out the news before the weekend. She literally got into her mode. And from that day forward, she became my primary caregiver, not just for the medical administration, but also when it comes to making sure my appointments are, uh, that uh, are scheduled, make sure that I'm taking the right medications, making sure that I had everything I needed as uh, to do to basically fight cancer. To the point she even created her own medical binder for me, which is really about more than three inches thick. So every time we go to a meeting with an oncologist, with another doctor or specialist, we fought this together. However, the other side is the emotional side. Sometimes it gets to her. I know when I was diagnosed the second time, we were at Virginia Hospital Center and we we're having, uh, after that meeting, we we're sitting down having lunch. She just started crying. So we went into the church chapel and we prayed. And I'm the one who was comforting her. And I realized at that moment, you know what? The caregiver, they're the ones who really have to take most of the load. I would argue that the caregiver has it far worse than the cancer patient. Beautiful thing to remember that we don't always just think about the ones that are going through the toughest times themselves, but those that are closest to supporting them need our support as well. And I know Alex, you wrote her a beautiful poem. Do you want to share that with us? I do. This is for you, Teresa. And I, and I, and I penned this up years ago and I don't remember when, but it became it, was, it became such apropos to what our situation when, it, when we first was diagnosed with cancer in 2013, and it's titled Fighting Love. Each morning when I awake and see the beauty lying next to me gives account to another day worth fighting for. 
knowing that God has favored me with this Eve, evidence that there is such thing as grace for men like me. Each day I desire to pursue her as the first day we met, to delight in her more than myself in the world, knowing tomorrow may never come. Indeed, what I do know is that the fight inside me is for this Eve. That is so beautiful. And thank you, Teresa, for caring for Alex so beautifully and giving such a great example for others, how to handle people in their lives that are dealing with this. We've talked so much and I'm so inspired by everything you have done over these last eight years. And I am especially awed by your outlook on leaving a legacy. Um, Please share with us how this has changed your thinking about a legacy. I call myself, I'm a a professional misfit because I didn't go, I went to college, but I had a rough start. I was kicked out my senior year in high school for fighting every Tom, Dick and Harry. So cancer through my journaling, through just expressing what I was going through, people started saying to me, you're writing, it's so inspirational. It's just, they're taking nuggets from it. It showed me that I am a good writer. I can write. I'll never say I'm a great writer. I'm always an inspiring writer, but cancer allowed me to see that gift. But for me, you know, the biggest thing is, is that, you know, when it comes to having cancer, when it comes to having an incurable disease, I have to struggle and accept that my life could be, could end uh, uh, around the corner. I may not live to 65 or 75 or 85. And I, and I had to learn to accept that. So for me, my focus is, okay, what legacy do I leave behind? You know, quite frankly, I didn't, I didn't have any control when I was born. And I'm not going to have, I don't have any control when I pass. But I do have control of that, that dash in the middle, that time in between. So for me, regardless how long my path is, I realize I can actually leave a good legacy and more so a legacy for my wife. Alex, you've done it beautifully. And, you know, I loved what you said before, too, about life is too short and too hard. I don't want to add to that. I want to leave it with positivity. And Alex, that's what you're doing. And I want to leave today with you sharing with us about your Federal Career Connection Network that you have created. And what a beautiful legacy. I know you've done others as well. But share how we can find this initiative that you've done and tell us a little bit about it. I ended up volunteering at this job service community program, helping people unemployed in in career, those in career transition. Eventually I formed a program, which was part of my uh, career coaching credential. And I, and I, and I named it federal career connection over time though, especially through the bouts of cancer, I was getting tired. Uh, At one point I was thinking of actually dropping the program. In beginning of 2019, I was undergoing a a new type of treatment. I just didn't have the strength to do my workshop. So I sent some emails out and asked some folks to take over my workshops. In 2019, this village, these individuals from from different agencies and from community programs, they just came out of the the woodwork and they took over the workshops. I literally worked myself out of a speaking gig for 2019. And at the end of 2019, I basically uh, said to them that, hey, I'm still thinking about maybe ceasing federal career connection. And they told me, no, you can't. You have to keep this going. This is 
too much of a valuable program, a service that are helping people in career transition. I said, okay. So 2020, I, I rebooted the design of the program and we, we reached over a thousand job seekers. It's all because of these volunteers, these people who decided to align, to join me of helping people in career transition. And so with that said, for them giving their time, them taking their time away from their family and friends, this year I said to them, if we're gonna continue doing this, and I wanna make sure that Federal Care Connection is, is, stands on its own legs, we're gonna turn it into a not-for-profit, an educational not-for-profit. So what I do in the community, helping people in career transition, especially for when it comes to looking for federal jobs, but also we give them the tools and techniques to help them look for any job or any industry. This program is truly supported by these volunteers. And quite frankly, I, I love how it's becoming a life of its own. So for, for those who, who want to maybe uh, ponder or de uh, debating about maybe becoming a, a, civil, a, servant, a civil servant, you can go to federalcareerconnection.org, federalcareerconnection.org to learn about this program. And keep in mind, this is a volunteer-led program. Alex, what a great, great organization you've put together. And I love that it was put together with people caring for you to make it come to life. Best of luck with Federal Career Connections and best of luck. I'll stay in touch and be well, my friend. Thank you. What I love about Alex is not only his depth and wisdom, but how he has truly embraced those around him to help him with whatever he's going through. It has been in this journey that he has found that hardship is actually an opportunity to look beyond his circumstances for goodness. And he has found his purpose in helping those around him with the comfort and faith that he himself has been given. Amazing. Thank you, Alex. If you're interested in learning more about the skill of comfort, please visit us at inspiringcomfort.com or email me directly, jen, at inspiringcomfort.com. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much for joining this episode of Profiles in Comfort. We'll look forward to seeing you the next time. In the meantime, comfort on, my friends.